morning. Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Um, as Pastor Colin mentioned, my name is Hunter Boone. I'm the pastor of Family and Worship Ministries here this morning. Uh, I want to start out with a question for you guys this morning. So by show of hands, all right, raise your hand if this is true of you and keep it up. If it is, I'll tell you when to put it down. How many of you guys like me are DIYers, do-it-yourselfers, projectors, home renovators? Yeah, there's a lot of hands. All right, let's get some more hands. I don't care if it's screwing in a light bulb. Even if it's as simple as that, how many of you guys are DIYers? All right, hands up, keep them up. If your hand's up in the air, all right, keep it up if and only if every time you start a project around your house, you finish it all the way through. We've still got some hands in the air. If your hand is still in the air, how many of you guys are lying through your teeth? There's a lot of hands still in the air. I myself am a proud member of group number two, the group that seems to consistently be saying, I'm still working on it, I'll get around to it, right? I am a consistent member of that group. Well, if that's you, if you're like me this morning, I've got good news for you. We serve a God who never leaves a project halfway finished. When God makes a promise to us, he fulfills it. He fulfills it 100% every single time. Amen? All right. We're going to see that today in our passage in Exodus chapter 23. Now, as Pastor Colin mentioned, we're starting halfway through the book of Exodus. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to try to finish out all the way through chapter 40. So that means that I've got an extremely big challenge before us this morning. I've got to cover 22 chapters of context uh, before we even get to our passage today. So I hope you guys ate your Wheaties this morning. We're going to be here a while. We are not, we're not getting that lunch special today. Um, I'm kidding. I'm going to go as quickly as I can, but in order to cover the majority of the first half of Exodus, here's how I want to do it, all right? We all know and love the individual stories of Exodus, the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, all of those types of stories, but for the time being, for right now, here's what I want to do. Instead of thinking about the collection of individual stories in the book of Exodus, here's how I want to think about it. Think about the whole book, all 40 chapters is one big story, one plot line, all right? You got it in your mind? What's the turning point in that story? What's the turning point in the book of Exodus? When does it change? When does the narrative structure change? Here's my answer. If I was going to give you a contextual statement of the entire book of Exodus, I would do it in two sentences this way. Chapters 1 through 18 in the book of Exodus tell us about the people of God and how they get to chapter 19, Mount Sinai. Now, if you don't know what happens at Mount Sinai, that's okay. I'm going to unpack that in just a second. But for what I want, what I want you to know this right now. Chapters 1 through 18 tells the story of how the people of God, how Israel gets from Egyptian slavery to Mount Sinai. And then chapters 19 through 40 tell the story of what takes place on and around that mountain. All right, that's your macro view that's extremely zoomed out, your high-level view of the entire book of Exodus, and that only gets us to chapter 19, which means to start in chapter 23 today, I've got four more chapters of context to cover just to get us to where we are in our passage today. So I'm going to do this quickly. Uh, stick with me here, but I'll give us four chapters worth of context. So starting in chapter 19, what happens in chapter 19? 
The people of God finally arrive at Mount Sinai and God's presence rests on the mountain. God physically descends onto Mount Sinai and his glory is so weighty, it's so powerful that the mountain literally bursts into flame and it's covered in smoke. So much so that Moses has to tell the people, don't touch the mountain or you will be consumed by God's glory. We see all of that in chapter 19. Then we also see in chapter 19 the reason why God comes to the mountain in the first place. And that is to establish his covenant with his people. One of the things that we're going to see today is that God relates to his people through covenants. And really we see that through the whole Bible. So I've got to slow down here and pause and say, what exactly is a covenant? All right, I've got two definitions for us. Uh, The first is a technical definition, and the second one is a basic definition. So, a technical definition of a covenant is this. A covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. That's the technical definition. If you want to think about it a different way, think about it like this. A covenant is like a legal contract between God and man. That's the technical definition. Now, basic definition is this. A covenant in its most basic form is a mutual promise between God and his people. And so what we see in chapter 19 is this. God comes down to Mount Sinai to establish a mutual promise with his people. And what promise is that? We see it for the first time, really, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. It's articulated very clearly, and then we see it pop up all over the place in the Old Testament. It's this. This is the promise. I will be your God, and you will be my people. We see that all the way through the Old Testament, really all the way through the entire Bible. That's the covenant that God makes and the covenant that we're talking about today. That's the promise. Now, how does that actually play out? What does it look like to be a part of God's people? That's what we find out in chapter 20 through chapter 23, verse 19, which leads us to our passage today. So in chapter 20, God lays out the terms of the contract regarding what he expects from his people. Right? He gives them instructions on how to behave as the holy people of God. Now, we have a term that we use to refer to the instructions that God gives on how to behave as the holy people of God. Anybody know what we call that? Ten Commandments. You guys are smart here this morning. We get the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and then from chapter 21 through 23, verse 19, we get what's called the Book of the Covenant. Now, the Book of the Covenant simply is just God teasing out, fleshing out practical implications of the Ten Commandments in the lives of the Israelites today. And that brings us to our our passage today in chapter 23, starting in verse 20. Now, one more thing I want to say before I finish this little context piece. From chapters 19 through 23, we have largely seen God laying out the stipulations of the covenant, the expectations that he has for his people. And we're going to see a little bit of that today, but really what we're going to see today is this. God has been saying in these past four chapters, this is what I expect from you. And today, what we're going to see is God say, this is what you can expect from me. This is my side of the covenant. And that's where we pick up today in chapter 3, verse 20. That was a lot of information. We haven't even gotten to our passage yet. So if you're with me, say yes. All right, okay. All right, I got about... 50 people with me. That's pretty good. Um, For the rest of our time today, there is a lot of information here, and we're not going to touch every single verse. We're reading almost two full chapters, but 
To kind of summarize, I want to ask three questions of our text today. And those questions are in your bulletin. These are the three questions. First, what does God promise? What promise is God making? What does God promise? Number two, what does God expect? And then number three, how does God keep his promise? All right, those are the three questions we're going to seek to answer today. What I want to do now, I want to read starting in chapter 23, verse 20. We're going to go all the way through chapter 4, verse 8. You guys read with me. Starting in chapter 23, verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days, and I will send my terror before you, and I'll throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make your enemies turn their backs to you, and I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. I will, not, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord. You, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. And he took half the blood and he threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Let's pray together this morning. God, Lord, we thank you that you are not a God who leaves projects halfway finished. God, when you make a promise, we don't have to wonder. God, we don't have to wonder if you're going to keep it. We know that your word is truth, and your word tells us that you keep your promises. So God, help us to see that today. Help us to see what it is that you promised to us, what you expect from us, and Lord, how you keep your promise. Help us to magnify Christ 
today. We love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so we have three questions that we're going to try to answer from our text today. As I mentioned, the first question is, what does God promise? What does God expect, expect, and how does he keep his promise? So here's how I want to approach this. I'm going to ask you the question, and then your bulletin notes, if you're a note taker, is going to be the answer to the question. So I'll ask you the question, I'll give you the answer up front, and then we'll spend five to ten minutes unpacking how we got to that answer. Everybody go with me. Say yes. All right, sweet. Question number one. What does God promise? Answer number one. God promises a perfect dwelling place. Answer number one. God promises a perfect dwelling place. How did I get there? Look back with me to chapter 23, starting in verse 20, our first verse of the day. God says to his people, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you, watch this, don't miss this next part, to the place that I have prepared for you. We're going to ask a big question. We're going to spend some time here this morning. What place is God talking about? To answer that question, we go all the way back to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, we again see God relating to his people through covenants. In Genesis 12, God makes a covenant, a promise, a mutual promise to Abraham. And this is the promise that God made to Abraham. He says, I will make your offspring a great nation. And I will give to you the land of Canaan. And so God promises to give Abraham and his offspring the land of Canaan, making the land of Canaan a land of promise, otherwise known as the promised land. Yes. This is the same promised land that all of us have heard about in our Sunday school classes. It's the land that's flowing with milk and honey, where the grapes are so big, you literally have to carry them out on your shoulders. It's that promised land that we're talking about in Exodus chapter 23. That is the land that God has prepared for his people. Now, here's what we know about the promised land. There's two things. First, the promised land was an agricultural haven. Okay, the promised land was an agricultural haven, and we know that because it's referred to as the land that is flowing with milk and honey. Now, how many of you have bought a house or a piece of property and told your friends about it and said, my property is flowing with milk and honey? Nobody, because that's weird. It doesn't make any sense, right? Like that, that statement doesn't make any sense to you and me, but it meant something to them back then. Here's what it meant. The first thing we see, milk. What does milk represent, all right? They did not have food lion. They didn't have Harris Teeter. They couldn't choose between 2% or skim. 2% is the correct answer, but they couldn't choose that in their grocery stores. If they wanted milk, what they had to do was they had to go and physically milk their livestock so that they had milk. So the presence of milk represents the fact that the land was well-suited for their livestock. That's what we see from the milk. What about the honey, right? The honey represents not bees' honey, but the production of fruit. Literally, they're talking about the, the nectar of the fruit, the figs and the pomegranates. We'll see that in just a second in this land. And so what we see in the, pre, in the representation of honey is that the land possesses fertile soil for the growing of crops. And then the last word we see in that little phrase is the word flowing, which just means abundance. You could literally translate it as overflowing. So instead of the land that's flowing with milk and honey, you could literally say about the promised land, the land that is overflowing with livestock and vegetation. That doesn't have quite as nice a ring to it, but you get the point. That's literally what it means. And so the promised land was an agricultural haven. Deuteronomy chapter 8 says this about the promised land. 
For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and of water, of fountains and springs flowing out of the valleys and in the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land which you will eat bread without scarcity, and watch this, in which you will lack nothing. The promised land was an agricultural haven, which meant that once they got there, they would lack nothing. It represented complete provision on behalf of the Lord. This was part of what God was promising to his people, complete provision. That's what we see first about the promised land. The second thing that we see is that the promised land was a place of rest, okay? The Israelites, the people of God, remember the story, were enslaved in Egypt, and then God sets them free to wander around in the wilderness. And so they, they're out of the frying pan, they're into the fire, and eventually we're going to see that they say to Moses, we would rather be back in Egypt because, yes, we were at the very bottom of the totem pole, but at least we were on the totem pole somewhere. When we're wandering around in the wilderness, we literally have no place at all. Anywhere these people were, they were not at home. They were consistently wandering. They were vagabonds in every sense of the word. And so the promised land to them represented, one, an end to their wandering, two, a place of rest, and three, their home. The promised land represented their home. It was a place of rest. Now, here's the question. How in the world does any of that relate to you and me? Like, what, is, what does any of that mean for you and me? Look back to the promise. There's three things. Complete provision, an end to wandering, and a home. That very same promise extends to you and to me. Because at our very core, we are like the Israelites. We're wandering in a place that is not our home. 1 Peter 2 literally says that we are sojourners and exiles in this world. And here's why that is. Because God's perfect creation has been shattered by sin. What was once perfect paradise is now completely broken and distorted. Sin broke our perfect dwelling place. Sin corrupts our love for God. And not only does sin completely obstruct our relationship with God, but it also has natural and personal repercussions. Romans 8.20 says that creation was subjected to futility. Here's what that means. God's original creation did not include cancer diagnosis. And it didn't include deep-seated pride that obliterates marriages. It didn't include miscarriage. All of these things that we've become so accustomed to in this world points us to the fact that this place is not our home. It's not our true home. Hebrews 13, 14 affirms this as it says, For this world is not our home. We are looking forward to our everlasting home in heaven. We're looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. And Revelation 21 has some things to say about that new heaven and new earth. It tells us that we'll be completely provided for. We'll have no need for anything. We will have no evil or sorrow or brokenness in our midst. Revelation 21.6 literally says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the old things have passed away. Point number one God promises us a perfect dwelling place. Now, I want to return to something that Pastor Collins said a couple weeks ago in one of his sermons. What is it that makes this dwelling place so perfect? 
right? You can ask the same question about the promised land, the land of Canaan, right? What was it that made it so perfect? Was it the fact that it was an agricultural haven? That they would have everything that they need completely provided for? Was it the fact of a promise of rest? Was it a fact that it was a promise that it would be their home? Yes is the answer to each of these questions. Yes, all of those things are true, but they're supplemental blessings. The thing that made the promised land perfect was Exodus 29, verse 45 and 46. It says this, God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I'll be their God, and they shall know that I'm the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt for the purpose that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The promised land for the Israelites was perfection because God would dwell with them there. Our new heaven and new earth that we look forward to is the same thing. I love the similarity. Look at the similarity between Exodus 29 and Revelation 21. Watch this. Behold, Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, it's not the blessings that make the dwelling place, per, pl, dwelling place perfect. It's the presence of the one who blesses. God promises us a perfect dwelling place because it's where he will dwell with us. That's the answer to question number one. Now, all of that, the example of the promised land in Exodus points us to the new heaven and new earth, that which has not yet taken place. Question number two points to the right now. Question number two is this, what does God expect? Answer number two is this, God expects a perfect obedience. God expects perfect obedience. Perfect obedience must be maintained. How did I get there? We'll look at a couple verses together here quickly. Verse 21 says this, Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. God puts it very clearly. If you disobey my angel, you will not be forgiven. That is very serious language. And then in verse 23, we get a glimpse of what obedience and disobedience look like. Verse 23, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. Catch that in the last line. Four imperatives, three negative, one positive. Three you shall not, one you shall. Look at the negatives first. What's the first one? You shall not bow down to their gods. Number two, you shall not serve them. Number three, you shall not do as they do. Here's what's interesting. When you read through those things, you realize it's the same commandment. The commandment hasn't changed, but the intensity of the commandment has changed with each statement. Number one, no idolatry. Do not bow the knee. Don't worship other gods. This is the commandment in the most basic form. Number two, you shall not serve other gods. Here's what that means. You can't say, I worship the one true God, but I sacrifice to other gods. I worship the one true God, but I hope for things in this other God. I expect things from this other God. You can't do that. You can't serve other gods. Number three, no pagan resemblance whatsoever. God says you can't do as they do. He says you can't walk, talk, think, act, look, smell. You can't do anything like these pagan idol worshipers are doing, which means that there's only one thing left to do, and that's the positive. You shall. What do we see? 
You shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. Now, the reason that God is being so extreme on this commandment, he makes clear in verse 33. He says this, They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. What's the point in all of this, right? What is the point in this little passage here? The point is this. God expects uncompromising loyalty to himself. Uncompromising, absolute, complete loyalty to himself. Now, I got to be clear here. When I say God expects, I don't mean he anticipates. I don't mean that he's surprised when people fail to uphold complete loyalty. My point is to say that God has a standard, a requirement, an expectation. And it's this, complete holiness, unwavering loyalty, perfect obedience. Here's the application. God expects complete loyalty from you and me as well. The standard is the same. God expects complete loyalty. But someone might stand up and say, no, the gospel of Christ is all about grace and mercy and forgiveness. And yes, that's true. That is absolutely true. But it doesn't mean that the standard is no longer applicable. It doesn't mean that the expectation of perfect obedience has disappeared or changed in any way. If it did, what would we do with verses like this? Hebrews 12, 14. Without holiness, no one will see God. 1 Peter 1, 15, be holy as he who called you is holy. Matthew 5, Jesus, talking about the Ten Commandments, says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. God's standard, his expectation, is perfect obedience, complete, unwavering loyalty. Now, here's the temptation, right? When we um, face the fact that God expects perfect obedience, here's what you and I do. I won't speak for you. I'll speak for me. Here's what I do. I go to the Ten Commandments, and I start going down the list. And I start checking off my boxes. And I say, I haven't committed murder this week, so that's pretty good. Check. I haven't cheated on my wife this week. All right, cool. I don't have a shrine in my house. I haven't prayed to another God. Like, check. No idolatry. We're good. And I get a few checks down and I say, so you're saying there's a chance, right? Like there, I am, I'm doing it. I'm doing, I can do this. None of us actually say that. We wouldn't verbalize that. We wouldn't actually print out a list of the Ten Commandments and cross them out or check them off. But subconsciously, what are we doing? In the way that we live, in our actions, in the things that we do, the things that we think, the things that we say, what are we doing? We don't say it out loud, but it is how we live. We live, you and I live, as if the Ten Commandments only apply in their most basic forms. But what did we see in verse 23 just now? The commandment was no idolatry. No idolatry whatsoever. But then God says, if you serve other gods or do any of the things that they're doing, you commit idolatry in your heart. He says, if you, utter, if you fail to utterly overthrow their idols, if you fail to crush their idols into dust, you commit idolatry in your heart. And doesn't that sound an awful lot like what Jesus says in Matthew 5? You have heard it said that you shall not commit murder. But if you're angry with your brother or sister, you commit murder in your heart. You have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you commit adultery 
in your heart. And he goes on. The point I'm trying to make here is this. Despite what we may believe, despite what we may think about our ability to keep the Ten Commandments, Romans 3.23 was not wrong about a single person in this room. Every single one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us in our hearts are murderers, adulterers, and idolaters. And so the question I would ask then is, is it any wonder why we give into the false narrative that maybe we can uphold the law? How else are we going to face the day? If we wake up every morning and say, I am broken and I'm an idolater and an adulterer and a murderer in my heart, how else are we going to face the day? How is God going to keep his promise that he's going to deliver us to this perfect dwelling place? How is he going to do it? That's question number three. How does God keep his promise? The answer is a perfect sacrifice. God keeps his promise through a perfect sacrifice. Now, I don't have much time left. There's two more things I want to do, though, um, with the remainder of our time. The first thing is I want to unpack the theology of what that means. What does it mean, a perfect sacrifice? I want to unpack that theology. And the second thing I want to do is I want to show you how I got there from Exodus chapter 23. So we'll address the theology, and then we'll take our time, and we'll see how we see that in Exodus 23. So theology first, Exodus 24, starting in verse 3. Moses came. And told the people all the words of the Lord, all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then we jump to verse 5. Moses sends young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and what? We will be obedient. Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people, and he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. What we just read... What we just witnessed in Exodus chapter 24 is what's called a covenant ceremony. Remember, a covenant is a legal binding contract between God and man. So in this time, here's how they would do it. It's literally called cutting a covenant. Here's why. Two guys decide they want to enter into a contract together. So here's what they do. They take an ox, they take some kind of sacrificial animal, and they split it right in half. Literally, they cut it down the middle. And they take one half of the animal and they put it up on this side of the trench and another half of the animal and they put it up on this side so that the blood runs down into the middle. You've got a little valley of blood here. And then what they would do is they would say, all right, here's the deal. Here's what I expect from you. And the guy says, okay, I'll do it. And the other guy says, here's what I expect from you. And he says, deal. They've made a covenant, right? The next thing that they do is they walk through this trench of blood. They're covered in blood up to their knees. Why do they do that? Here's what they're doing. They're saying, if I fail to uphold my end of the bargain, my end of the contract, so has that which has been done to these animals do so to me. The covenant represents the fact that if you fail to uphold it, it results in death. That's what the blood of the covenant represents. Now, we just saw a version of this in Exodus chapter 24. Moses reads the conditions, the book of the covenant, the expectations of the Israelites. He read to what God promised to do for them. And the Israelites said two times, not once, two times, all that the Lord has said we will do. Moses said, all right, 
we've got a covenant. He threw half the blood on the altar, which represented God. He threw the rest of the blood on the people. And then verse 11 tells us what they did next. It says, they beheld God and they ate and drank. They feasted. They celebrated their God. They celebrated their covenant with their God. And then, some 1,500 years later, a group of people were celebrating the Passover. And when they had finished eating, Jesus Christ stood up and he offered them a cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. When Jesus did that at the Last Supper, here's what he said to his disciples. You guys are idolaters in your heart. You're murderers and adulterers in your heart. You have failed to uphold your end of the covenant. You deserve death to be crucified on a cross. But Jesus says, I am going to take your place on that cross. I'm going to take your punishment upon myself. And as Jesus hung there on that cross, he experienced the wrath the wrath of God, the judgment that we deserve, Jesus took that upon himself. Now, what did Jesus actually do, right? Did he get rid of the covenant? Did he reject the law? Did he say perfect obedience is no longer necessary? No. He fulfilled it. He kept the covenant. He maintained the law. He maintained perfect obedience in his life. And so when God looks at you, it's not that he doesn't see your idolatry. He sees your idolatry. He sees your adultery. He sees the murder in your heart, but he also sees that you are covered from head to toe in the blood of Christ and that your penalty has been paid. Christ maintained perfect obedience and he served as our, surf, our perfect sacrifice. And if we put our faith in him, we can know that one day he will come back to restore creation to its original form, a perfect dwelling place. Jesus Christ is our perfect sacrifice. That's the theology. Now, where do we see this in Exodus? Where do we see Christ in Exodus? Before we go there, I've got in big red letters on my manuscript, invite the band back up. So I think it's time to do that. If I don't, if I don't put it in big red letters, I will completely forget. Um, and I've been a worship leader when the pastor forgets to invite you back up. It's not fun. It's hard. Um, where do we see Christ in Exodus? I know there's people moving around here. Don't lose focus with me. Stick, stick with me here. This is one of my favorite things about the book of Exodus. Where is Christ in Exodus? We, um, we look to verse 20 and 23, and we see two references to this angel character. All right, so track with me here. Verse 20, God says, I will send an angel. And then we go to verse 23, and he says, when I send my angel. Now, that is a slight difference. It's a subtle difference, but it is a difference, and I don't want to miss it here. My angel, the word my angel, tells us that this is not a standard run-of-the-mill angel. There's something different about this one. Verse 21 Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Why should we do that? God says, because my name is in him. This tells us that the angel serves as God's representative. But don't miss this now. Verse 21 again. Whose voice are the people to obey? His voice. The angel's voice. 
And so the angel is not simply regurgitating information from God. The angel is speaking with the authority of God himself. That's uncommon. Usually when God uses an angel, he sends an angel with a message to relay to people. He doesn't usually give them the ability to speak freely. But verse 21 says, if you disobey the voice of this angel, he will not forgive your transgression. Now, why does God not say, if you disobey my angel, I, God, will not forgive you? He could have said that, and it would have made perfect theological sense, because Mark 2, 7, who can forgive sins but God alone? But God doesn't say that. He says, if you disobey, the angel will not pardon your transgression. We see in this angel that the name of God is in him. He has the ability, the authority to speak as God himself and the ability to forgive sins, which only God has. And yet, he is in some way distinguished from God. God does not say, I will come myself and lead you to this promised land. He says, I will send my angel. And so we see the angel has the name, the authority, and the ability of God, yet he's somehow distinguished from God. Here's what this tells us about the angel. Scholars and theologians agree that this angel is the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And just to make sure you're understanding me correctly, pre-incarnation literally means existence before incarnation, existence before birth. And so here's the point. Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, showed up for the Israelites for the purpose of Exodus 23:20 to bring them to the place that God had prepared for us. Then we look to John chapter 14 and we realize that Jesus' role today is no different. John chapter 14 says, "In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again." And take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The Jesus that led the Israelites through the wilderness is the same Jesus who maintained perfect obedience in his life. At the end of his life, he served as a perfect sacrifice. He overcame death. He resurrected from the grave. And he gave us hope that when he returns, he will lead us to himself, the place that he has prepared for us. It's the same Jesus. And so if there's anything to have confidence in this morning, Christian, it's this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Remember how we started this morning. We said that when God makes a promise, he never leaves it halfway finished. God always fulfills his promises. Take confidence in that this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that it's faithful, it's true. God, we don't have to wonder if you're going to keep your promise. God, we know that when you make a promise to us, you always fulfill it. God, I pray that this morning we would, we would recognize the fact that Romans 3.23 was not wrong about us, Lord. We, in and of ourselves, are incapable to maintain the law, to maintain the standard which you have set for us, but through Christ, through Christ, we have boldness to approach your throne.
through Christ you call us children of God. The fact that Christ served as our perfect sacrifice gives us the ability to call you Abba, Father. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that we would that we would put our faith in you, that we would put our hope and our trust in you, that we would lean into you, accept the fact that we cannot maintain the law, but you did and you served as our perfect sacrifice. God, allow that truth to encourage us. Encourage us to live a life that is honoring and glorifying unto you. Not as a means to maintain our righteousness, God, we could never do that, but as a means to show you how much we love you, God, we choose to obey. So God, we thank you for who you are. We love you. We're grateful for this morning together. We pray all of these things in your name.